Welcome to On Belief, a podcast from Victoria University's Emmanuel College in the University of Toronto. I'm your host, Nahid Mustafa. On Belief is a home for conversations about the place of faith in the public sphere, what happens when God meets public life and shapes our culture and our politics. We'll explore the challenging questions about the role of religion in the 21st century and whether it can exist harmoniously alongside the modern ideals of a secular society. Religious accommodations, the request for specific considerations on the basis of faith, prove again and again to be a source of controversy and often hostility. Requesting accommodation in the public school system is the right of every student, but as the number of students from religiously observant households increases, there is a growing tension between those who advocate for a quote-unquote neutral public space free of religion and those who say practicing one's faith is a fundamental right. The issue comes up each school year, whether it's the sex ed curriculum or accommodation for prayers or opting out of Halloween costume parades. A seemingly small request can turn into a public fight about values, fairness, and what it means to be a Canadian. This episode of On Belief brings together two people asking similar questions, but in different settings. Suzanne Muir is an equity consultant in Ontario and has worked with public schools for the last two decades. She deals with the day-to-day task of figuring out how people sharing space in public schools can learn to get along despite their differences. Anwar Iman from the University of Toronto is also asking this question, but he wonders if the answers perhaps lie in a complete reimagining of that relationship. What does it mean to be religious and what does it mean to be public? My name is Suzanne Muir and I'm an equity and inclusion strategist consultant working mostly in the education sector and social services. Well, I think equity is is uh, a really, um, you know, kind of deep, complex idea. And sometimes people think of equity as just something that you do um, in your practice that, you know, makes things more inclusive. And sometimes that's a very, you know, true and simplistic kind of notion. But sometimes I look at equity more as a way of thinking or a way like a philosophy that you approach your work with whether you're a teacher or a doctor or you know serving clients in a in an agency um it's just sort of the the underpinnings that you have that you believe that everyone has an equal opportunity and that everyone has unique needs so that serving people all in the same way doesn't necessarily meet their needs as they require and so it's it's um, looking deeper under the surface instead of just saying, okay, well, we, you know, we gave everybody a pair of size six running shoes. Well, obviously, we don't all have size six feet, you know, but that's, that's equal, right, to give everybody the same thing. But it's not really equitable because not everybody's going to be able to wear those shoes. So in education, of course, because every student comes to school and is very unique and has unique learning needs, Maybe there's cultural needs, gender needs, sexual orientation, language needs, ability needs, and so on. 
you have to really take each um, student as an individual and a case-by-case approach to to understanding what it is they need, what what kind of conditions can we lay out so that they can actually learn to their highest potential. So in terms of faith, um, you know, there's always some kind of some basic needs that have to be looked after, like dietary requirements. You know, certain kids from certain faith backgrounds may or may not be able to eat certain foods. And so if the school is having a special lunch day, they have to take into consideration those needs. Are there vegetarian kids who can't eat a beef hot dog? And then are there, um, you know, Jewish or or Muslim kids who would prefer kosher or halal meat and that kind of thing. So people are, I think, over the last few years have gotten a lot better at being aware, just in general, that there's all this variety of dietary needs. And that extends beyond faith, right? Like there's lots of allergies that we're much more aware of now. We have all kinds of laws protecting kids about people bringing nut products to school and so on. Um, But then there are deeper kind of um, cultural and faith I think issues that are not as easy to accommodate in school or that might be seen as clashing with a mainstream um, secular ideal. And those particularly seem to happen around issues of gender and sexual orientation, I find. I actually think 30 years ago, because we actually maybe didn't even have formal legislation, and we also had like minoritized faith communities were not... um, big yet you know we didn't have large numbers of kids so I think um, school staff were pretty willing to accommodate the one or two students who couldn't stand for O Canada because they were Jehovah's Witness or the one or two Muslim students who needed to go and find a quiet place to pray at lunchtime I think it's interesting that as the numbers of people have grown and the numbers of requests for accommodation have grown there came about this need to have something actually legitimized in terms of a procedure, you know, a faith accommodations policy. Um, Of course, we have Ontario Human Rights Code that guides that, and then every board has to have a faith accommodation guideline so that there's somewhat of a similar approach across the board. You don't have one principal saying, oh yeah, it's okay to do your prayers at lunchtime, and then another principal saying, no way, you're not allowed to do that. So, but that system systematizing then brings up more kind of logistical issues. It brings up issues around, well, okay, who's going to supervise, for example, the lunchtime prayers. It's not really written into the duties of the teacher. Um, Technically, the responsibility to supervise students would always fall to the administrators, right? The vice principal, the principal. Um, They could ask parent volunteers to come in and supervise. And again, if you have small numbers of kids, it's easier to accommodate. But what happens when you reach a tipping point where, you know, 80% of your school needs to pray Zohar prayers in the winter time? And so, you know, and your school is a thousand kids. What do you do? Do you have to actually change your gym schedule? Like I know of schools in the GTA who've had to do that to accommodate the numbers of students. What kind of effect does that have on your school culture? How does that impact staff who maybe don't totally understand or agree with the Ontario Human Rights Code, you know, duty to accommodate faith in public spheres? I think that becomes a really interesting conversation because um, it was somehow cute and benign when it was just a few people 
but it's it's somehow more um, serious and I don't know important a conversation when it's a lot of students who need these accommodations. I think that faith in the public sphere forces us to think about how one we understand what faith is and two what we understand the public sphere is. So if we're talking about North America, we must ap- appreciate the fact that when we talk about religion, the dominant religion that animates our thinking about religion is going to be Christianity, most likely Protestant Christianity, and secondarily Catholic um, Christianity. If I were in the Muslim world, the most dominant notion of religion will be the Islamic. And, and we can't disentangle that assumption around what religion is from our, our construction of the public sphere. So to give an example, our, our religious freedom jurisprudence here in Canada allows for religious freedom, but places various restrictions on its manifestation. Um, and we see that in a variety of, of court cases. But what's, what's challenging for those traditions like, like Judaism and Islam, but even the Hatterian Brethren, for instance, is sometimes religious belief isn't just belief, it's practice. Practice is belief. And to regulate, to be able to distinguish between conscience and belief on the one hand and practice and manifestation on the other works really well if you're a Protestant. doesn't work particularly well if you're a tradition that demands a certain kind of ritual performance as actual manifestation of the belief. So as an example, uh, if a Muslim woman believes that she must wear the head, the head covering for modesty, to ban the head covering doesn't allow her to preserve the belief in modesty. It's the practice, the performance of wearing that is the, f- the fulfillment of the belief. And so our, our, our perceptions in the law, for instance, track these prevailing conceptions of religion and then thereby affect the public sphere. I don't think anyone's doing it particularly well. I think what we have to recognize is that we must continuously be vigilant in the face of a majoritarian conceptions of religion as they inform who gets to be in the public sphere and on what terms. So my name is Anvar Iman. I'm a professor of law and Canada research chair in religion, pluralism, and the rule of law here at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law, where I specialize in my research on, on Islamic law, but also teach in the area of constitutional law, statutory interpretation, and racial politics and the law. We generally are living in kind of a, a dominant culture that's secular humanist. I think we could all probably agree with that. I think we used to say, oh, Canada's a Christian majority Christian society. But, you know, all the census data is showing now that most people don't self-identify as um, following any religion these days, right? So there's kind of this dominant hegemonic idea about secular humanism. But we have students attending school who are, who really are following a very different worldview in their heads. And so they sometimes, even as young children, come up against this conflict of worldviews where they're kind of wondering why well, wait a minute why can't I think this or say this in public school this is what I believe this is what you know I've been told at home this is what when I go to the mosque I believe or my church or my synagogue and then why is it that I come to school and I suddenly if I say what I believe about for example gay people um, I'm being told oh you actually you're not allowed to say that here because this is a public school And we have students here who have same-sex parents or who themselves may or may not be LGBTQ. And so students are really sometimes shocked, like, oh, but this is what I believe. How do I reconcile this? And we're talking about young students, as young as, say, grade three, grade two, you know, who suddenly have to 
figure this out like oh okay so does that mean I'm wrong does that mean they're wrong does that mean like who's right in this situation or who's um, because kids think very concretely like that who's right and wrong you know and I think they obviously have to follow what the authority figures at school are telling them but some some kids really do rebel against that and it becomes a very challenging conversation for teachers or staff who are trying to help them navigate these shared identities I think equity would say that nothing is neutral, right? Equity would say that there's always a mainstream ideology and then there are minoritized ideologies that are sometimes pushed to the margins and don't get the same kind of respect or airplay or, um, you know, um, what's the word? Just uh, the same kind of interactions. So I think that for students who are coming from faith backgrounds and worldviews that are somewhat minoritized they you know they don't see themselves right as being either progressive or conservative or they just this is just their their reality right this is just who they are and then sometimes we think that yes okay we hear people say well give them a few years in Canada they'll change they'll um, they won't think this way anymore but we've seen there are cases where the Canadian-born Muslims are more observant than the newcomer Muslim, for example, you know. And we can't make those kind of assumptions that newcomers are more, quote-unquote, conservative or observant. That may not necessarily be true at all because we're all so much more globally mobile. I mean, people are moving to Canada, but it's not like, you know, we have this image sometimes that newcomers all came from some small little village in a developing country to this beautiful, modernized, you know, country of Canada, which is false. I mean, many, many, I would almost say most newcomers have lived globally in many different cities and are coming and are educated and are aware and maybe more globally aware than we are out here in Canada. So you just can't make those assumptions anymore about who anybody is and why, why anybody is being observant or not observant of their faith. No, I think, it's, I think you're right to say that to question the possibility of it, it's not possible unless we remain very committed to it. It's not possible unless we recognize that every time a religious minority appears before an officer of the state, they're already in a vulnerable position. They're already in a position of being prejudged because of these predominant views of what religion is and what the relationship is between the state that then regulates this presumed public sphere. So it's... As, and I've, I've written about this in another book of mine where um, in trying to think about the treatment of non-Muslims under medieval Islamic law and the treatment of Muslim women today who wear the headscarf in countries like the U.S., Canada, France, both are in similar positions being regulated by the ruling authority in terms of how they show and manifest their difference in a society that is struggling with being open to that difference. And we, re- we need to recognize then that, that this will remain a... Um, a site of ongoing contest. I think, again, the dominant culture does that in some very subtle but very powerful ways. So, you know, for example, if if it was not Eid and you chose to wear, quote-unquote, Eid clothes to school, people would say to you, why are you wearing those today? Right? Why are you wearing a shalwar kameez to school today? Um, like, And if you just said, I don't know, because it's Tuesday, because I like wearing shalwar kameez, you might be, you might come away with the feeling like, but that's not what we do here. You know what I mean? Like you should wear your jeans and shirt on a Tuesday. 
But if it's Eid, okay, that's okay. Then, you know, dress up in your Eid clothes and come to school like that. So I think those are subtle messages that kids just pick up on. Like, I don't see anybody wearing their shalwar kameez to school every day. So even though that's part of my faith, my culture, I'm not going to wear that to school. Um, there's other kinds of examples, too, where um, a student may, you know, have a deeply held belief, but not feel, like, feel very silenced, that they can't talk about that at school. Even just around their own identity. I mean, there's lots and lots of students who just are not, quote-unquote, out as being you know, whatever their faith is at school. They just don't talk about it. Just avoid the conversation. And to be fair, there's lots of really great teachers out there too who who feel like faith is just too controversial. And especially with the kind of global um, events that we're all kind of trying to deal with, they just don't want to go there. So they avoid talking about faith as well. And they, maybe they talk about culture, but in a very superficial way. Like what holidays do you celebrate? What foods do you like to eat? But, you know, we don't get into deeper ideas. So I just think those kind of more nuanced conversations don't get brought up a lot. We're still dealing with the very superficial kinds of um, the things that become apparent. Now, sometimes um, the accommodations that are requested, it's very easy to accommodate. And there's generally then not a big deal. It's the ones where it's more difficult or inconvenient to accommodate, or it really rubs against some kind of notion of fairness. And then, of course, there are true limits to accommodation under our current um, human rights code. So you cannot use your faith as a reason to discriminate against other people. You know, you can't say, I hate these, this group of people because my faith says I have to hate them. You may think that, but you're not allowed to say that openly in a public school because then you're creating a toxic environment for other people. I think uh, there's a number of different things we could speculate. And, and here I'm, I'm on less secure ground, but I wanna, I'm going to offer a couple, a couple possibilities. One is that we see through um, the ease of migration the fact that we are now encountering through immigration, through our needs for different kinds of labor force supports, differences along racial and religious lines. And those groups who have now made Canada or France or or the United States home are now demanding a space, a demanding a space in a context where that demand is completely appropriate in a democratic context. And what's happening now is they're coming up against a certain kind of majoritarianism that we had thus far taken for granted uh, the majoritarianism informed a certain nationalism that is now, now, now coming unraveled, and so part of the challenge is how has our economy, how has our, our our interconnected global global network of of movement of people and capital um, changed the way in which we imagine who and what we are as a country, and not just us in Canada, but any country, um, and how then do we reimagine? what it means to be a democratic society. Um, and it, and I do mean reimagine because suddenly we're faced with a democratic order that can't really rely on the same assumptions of who its citizens are, who belongs, um, as they used to. They can't, we can't assume that the borders operate the way they've always, the, the way they've always operated. Um, and so now that we are, are managing those borders, in many ways, what we see not only is that we're having a hard time with religious accommodation, but with that, we also see at the exact same time that we're concerned about religious accommodation, we're also concerned about immigration. We're also concerned about tightening our borders. I don't, I don't think those two are, are disconnected. I think they completely overlap. 
It's it's a problem, and I think it's a problem that that requires a two way street. On the one hand, you have a public sphere that's been framed by a certain majoritarianism that can, in this demand for a kind of compliance, come off looking rather colonial, rather hegemonic. Um, and in reaction to that hegemonic colonial impression is uh, is a demand by minority groups to be accepted on their terms as if their terms are also absolute, are no less dominant in, within their own minority group. So the problem then is no one's really reflecting internally about what's actually necessary, what's actually absolute, and what the flexibility is. The majoritarian, those upholding a certain majoritarian view, either are unwilling to recognize it as majoritarian and rather see it as universal, and in that case, perpetuate a kind of hegemony of sorts. Um, while at the same time, we know that actually what passes as the dominant view or a majoritarian view has nuance, can be nuanced if we choose. And and more 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 challengingly, I think, to minority groups is what is oftentimes articulated as an assumed truth about their religious tradition is part of a historical pro- process of orthodoxy making. And, it's a, and it takes particular shape and poignancy in these moments of conflict where to, to be seen to be flexible, is, it's as if we are nano, uh, capitulating to the colonial aggressor. And so one can't disentangle one from the other. Both are problems, the majoritarianism that goes unchecked and this, m- this minority claim in a, in a rights framework that's, that's in, that they're entitled to make vis-a-vis a rights framework, but isn't entirely honest either with the dynamics of their own tradition. So how do you then get both sides to, in a sense, in- interrogate their own operative assumptions about what they deem as truth in order to clear ground as opposed to find common ground. The, the finding common ground assumes that we have two very stable starting points and we're trying to find an overlap. And I want to suggest that what we presume to be stable starting points are in fact not stable at all and that every tradition has instability and that's where the greatest creativity lies. But also to, to demand that it be creative, a creative space, makes people uncomfortable. The argument that comes up with music is that, like, this is in the Ontario Education Act. We have to teach what's in the curriculum. And so you, some some teachers and educators really believe strongly, you should not be able to exempt yourself from any part of the curriculum. Some people think, no, you should be able to exempt yourself from, if there's particular um, sensitivities to music or um, a certain kind part of the curriculum that doesn't mesh with your faith beliefs. If you have a sincerely held belief, you really think you're doing something wrong by participating in this. Um, but t- I found over the last few years, the tide has really turned. And again, maybe that's just because we have larger numbers of um, the Muslim community in general in Canada. So instead of one or two music students asking to be exempt, now you may have 50 in your school asking to be exempt. And so does that make it more somehow more of a crucial conversation where we're not as willing to give in and say, for logistical reasons, who will supervise these students, but also more philosophical reasons, no, this is the Ontario curriculum, this is what we teach. And we can accommodate you somewhat. So if you prefer to play a percussion instrument instead of a wind instrument, we could accommodate that, but we cannot exempt you from the music program. Or, and nobody will really overtly, 
not very many people will overtly suggest this in a public school, but there are times where if your sincerely held belief is that you can have no, you should hear no music, you should never be exposed to music, even the playing of O Canada, for example, then really you have to question, is public school the best place for you? And even is Islamic school, private Islamic school, the best place for you? Because they may play O Canada too, and they may still have a, a music program. There are Muslim schools that have music programs and art programs and so on. So some people will have to take the choice of homeschooling, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think people are just not as, well, we're not as willing to give in on things around um, sexual orientation because our, our knowledge as a society has really grown around sexual orientation. And we now really do see it as part of the Ontario Human Rights Code. They're a protected group, so they should not be discriminated against by somebody, right? So you can't call and say, I don't want my child to ever hear um, a story about same-sex parents being read at school. That's just not, you're not going to get that accommodation anymore. Whereas you might have 10, 15, 20 years ago, right? If you if you called the, the an administrator who was themselves not entirely sure if we should be reading stories about same-sex parents because of their own biases, you know, they might say, well, I don't want to ruffle this parent's feathers you know, it's their faith belief, and I kind of get it. And so, okay, we just quietly won't allow those books. Or we'll put those books, like 20 years ago when I was a librarian, those books we were told to put behind the, the, the librarian's shelf so that if a child with gay parents came and asked for that book, which is kind of ridiculous, <laughs> then, then we could give them the book to check out. But don't put it in main circulation because we wouldn't want to offend anybody. And now we really switched, right? We really, we're doing the opposite. We're saying, no, this is who we are. We are a public school system. Everybody attends. Everybody comes to school as they are and is welcome. Um, however, there's a limit. You can't, you can't openly disparage another group of people just because you particularly might hold a certain kind of belief at home. Oh, it's incredibly difficult to say in practice, and you don't see it being done. That's why I think we're part. We're having many of these conflicts because, you know, you could have, for instance, the 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 Conservative Party in its in its last campaign call for the the zero tolerance for our barbaric cultural practices act, established a barbaric cultural practices hotline, which is what their idea was, without recognizing that that language itself stems from nineteenth century white man's burden language that was inherently colonial. To not interrogate that, not recognize how that's going to be heard, is simply going to um, render the other side, the minority groups, more rigid, more inflexible in their in their position. And so this kind of antagonism that starts from these unquestioned presumptions will continue. I don't see it abating. Even though we talk about the state being secular, we know that it's, and this came out of the Quebec Reasonable Accommodation Commission, that the idea is that our state isn't a hands-off secular. It's a hands-on secular. It's what, what Charles Taylor and, 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 and Professor Bouchard would call open secularism, the idea that we as a state enable people in their practice, because, in their religious beliefs, because religion is, a, is an incredibly powerful source of community uh, and participation 
and perhaps even volunteerism. So those are things that we as a state would want to see people participate in. Uh, the question is, is how do you create a space for all of that? And so do I think that this strict separation is real? No, I don't think it's real. And I think, I think however, that uh, for minority groups, particularly ones that aren't part of a constitutional compromise, so the fact that we have a Catholic school board is part of a constitutional compromise back in the day, which makes it harder for new groups to create their own school boards on religious grounds. And we saw that in John Tory's um, campaign and his demise here in the province um, at that level. So do I think it's possible is the question. And I, I think it is possible. I do think, though, it requires a more open-ended dialogue between the various parties and interest. Some communities are able to do it, but they are more, they're perhaps able to maneuver within the gray zone that constitutes what is majoritarian. When you are a religious group that doesn't fall within the, the, the majoritarian, let's, let's call it Judeo-Christian, and you're racialized, and then you occupy an intersected space of both religious minority and racial minority. And those groups, I think, have it particularly difficult, um, especially when you couple that intersectionality of race and religious minority status along with questions of economic marginalization. All of these are part and parcel of what contributes to the rigidity of communities who are faced with challenging circumstances. There's always a few examples of parents who approach a school and maybe they're they're not willing to compromise, they're not willing to bend. Um, but largely, like the large majority of Muslim parents who do come to the public school setting are very much aware that they're functioning within the laws of Canada. They have to follow the Ontario Education Act. They have to look at the, the Human Rights Code, that the same code that protects them and their faith as Muslims, and for them to be free of discrimination and harassment when they're at school, their children are at school, that same code protects other people. So most people are very reasonable. They're very willing to make um, uh, compromises. And to and to, once you explain to them, this is our dilemma, we'd love to accommodate you, but we now have 100 students who want out of music class. Where will we put them? We have no extra rooms. We have nobody to supervise them. Um, can you help us? Often that's that's the question back to parents is, can you help us? Like, could you come in and help supervise? Or could you come and withdraw your student just for period two and then bring them back for the rest of the day? Some parents are more than willing to do that. Some parents are not able to do that and so on. But most of these things get worked out um, on a case-by-case situation with very reasonable people trying to find a good solution, you know, staff and parents. Occasionally you hear about these situations that hit the media where somebody's dug in their heels and they don't want to they don't want to change um their stance and or the school has dug in their heels and doesn't want to change their stance and then you know you find sort of this bigger conflict emerges but generally that's not the case and of course it's erroneous to think that it's only muslim students who are asking for accommodations there are many many students christian sikh Hindu, Jewish, who are also asking for certain different kinds of accommodations. They may not always be program in nature, like asking for an exemption from program, but it may be around dietary, it may be around clothing, like I can't wear the gym uniform, I need to wear long pants and a t-shirt. It may be around, you know, who I feel comfortable 
you know, touching physically, like gender-wise, like I don't want to touch boys. I just don't want to do it. And that's not particularly a Muslim thing. That can be all many different kinds of cultures and religions. So, you know, teachers, they don't have to become like experts in every, you know, cultural I don't know, differentiation. They just have to be willing and open to hear what their students are asking and hear what their parents are requesting and then to try to sit down and figure out a way to make it work. Usually that is very successful in schools. Well, um, so to return the gaze is to return the idea. So it comes out of um, Edward Said who wrote a book on Orientalism where he is critiquing the construction of what is the Islamic um, in the way Western scholarship had, had, had imagined it. Um, he ties it to the colonial project from Napoleon on into, into the Middle East. And the idea of returning the gaze is to say, well, we can parochialize. We, in the Muslim world, in the Middle East, um, can parochialize the European just as the European has you know, reified and limited the scope of what is the Islamic or the Middle Eastern. So the idea of returning the gaze is to do exactly what I've just suggested, that from a religious perspective, think about how we construe the public sphere. So one example is the one I, I, I mentioned earlier, how do we imagine religious freedom? Religious freedom works really well on our jurisprudence if you're Protestant, where you can separate belief from manifestation. To return the gaze is to say, yeah, but for other traditions in which belief and practice, belief and manifestation are inter intertwined, that mode of juridical analysis doesn't work. And, and, then, and therefore makes the notion of religious freedom more of an impossibility than a reality. Uh, and then it allows us to then have other conversations that then begin to question, what do we mean by religious freedom? So when the United States government has an international commission on religious freedom, what do they mean by that? It just so happened that particular commission was set up to, to appease the interests of Christian missionaries who felt persecuted as they were going into Muslim countries in particular and proselytizing. Um, the, the Harper government set one up as well, and now it's been it's being closed down by the, the Trudeau government. But it does force us, this returning the gaze forces us to question our own assumptions about what things like the charter mean. How do they take shape in the lives of individuals? Who's excluded? from the freedoms that we say are in fact universal. That's the idea of the returning the gaze. Well, I think then, I think one of the ways that, that, that this can take shape, and you're right, it does oftentimes take the form of focusing on Muslim communities as if there are exceptions. But I think that it's, it's, what would be interesting is to start thinking, let's say, about the public education system from a more intersected standpoint. So let's take not just Islam, but let's take other traditions of value that have also seemingly been excluded, in particular Aboriginal traditions. Once you begin looking at the, at the educational curricula from this perspective of, of not just you know, Abrahamic faith traditions, Christian, Jewish, and, and Islamic, but also Aboriginal traditions, which are not easily captured in the notion of religion, but nonetheless have been excluded. The idea then is, how is our construction of a curriculum inclusive or exclusive? How does it accommodate other faith traditions? And at a certain point, from a, from, from a basic perspective of our society, it is going to be a fight. It's going to be a challenge when, let's say, you do a sex ed curricula and religious communities say, I don't want my kids learning that in class. 
And perhaps that's just a fight that has to happen. It has to happen in order for the state to fulfill its mandate to educate students in a manner consistent with our health and safety considerations around how to also take ownership of your body in, a, in, a, in an environment where our bodies are consumed all the time and are, and are, and are symbols of consumption. Um, so, you know, whether I agree or disagree with parents who, who, who take issue with this sex ed curricula, I do think that how we nonetheless approach, approach a, a topic like sex ed, we need to even interrogate how we do that. It might very well be that a sex ed curricula needs to accommodate other traditions, not in terms of deciding whether we teach it or not, but how we teach it. How do indigenous peoples talk about reproduction? How, do, how, did, how did Muslim traditions talk about reproduction, sexuality, the regulation of sex, which they do. The Jewish traditions do that as well. And it could be an opportunity not so much to side with one position or another, but even in the teaching of sex ed, to recognize that other traditions approach this differently. And why, is, why can't that be part of the, the conversation? So it's not that students have to choose between one or the other. Instead of one or the other, it can be both and. And maybe that is what needs to happen. The problem, though, for teachers is that that's a lot more to teach. That's a heavier onus on teachers to come to terms with traditions that are not their own as well. So then it, de it demands increasing support of curriculum development for teachers who are already overworked and underpaid. And that's a different, that's a different political question that has to be addressed with funding. I think it's very hard for some, especially some younger students who they may just still be trying to figure out who they are, right? They're trying to figure out who they are um, with, you know, multiple competing identities. What does it mean to be Canadian? But my parents came here from XYZ. So do, like, am I really a Canadian? I mean, I find people are always asking my parents, where are you from? Or, oh, your accent is different. Or, oh, okay, you're new to Canada. I can tell you speak English a little differently than we speak English or whatever it is. So students are always trying to negotiate all these identities, right? When if the school says to them, no, sorry, we don't do that here. I think it really um, kind of negates part of their identity. It makes them rethink, makes them maybe think like, oh, it's not good to be whatever I am. And so that can be very hard and damaging for a student. Um, but at the same time, when there are things that happen at school that validate and welcome kids to talk openly about their faith and even incorporate it into their learning. So I'll give you an example. A really great teacher I know, she was teaching angles and she asked her students to think about how angles inform their own life experiences and I think the student was in grade six or seven and so uh, he was a Muslim student so he actually took pictures of himself doing the different motions of the Muslim prayer which is a physical prayer and he measured the angles so he measured the angles of you know bending over and then doing sujood and putting his head on the fore his forehead on the ground and so on and so that was his whole project pictures and then measuring angles of his body in prayer. So he, she nicely incorporated his real life, validated his experience without making it into a big special event. And that was really, that's, you know, kind of a best practice way of, of helping students incorporate their life experiences into teaching. 
I think equity, you always are going to, um, you're always going to run into some resistance around equity because change is very uncomfortable. And change, particularly where we're asking people to give up a little bit of power in order to make things more fair, is often hard for the group who has the power but doesn't necessarily see that it's power. You know, power and privilege is, is largely invisible and it's often only becomes visible to you when somebody's asking you to give some of it up. And your natural resistance to that is to say, no, I don't want to give this up. This is, you know, and you can give all kinds of reasons why you think it's important for you not to give it up. Um, so I think equity is always challenging, challenging work. But I think in general, society is getting better at understanding what is inclusion and why is inclusion important to us as a society like what are the benefits if we work hard to try to be inclusive in our public institutions particularly when children are growing and developing do we benefit by seeing less um, sort of issues out in society you know less fighting more integration between all different kinds of people working and being friends together and interacting together in in positive, good ways, right, in, in our communities. And I think we all recognize that there are those very tangible benefits. So although it's hard work to do and you have to just keep the dialogue going and there's no one right way to be equitable or inclusive, we have to let people explore that a bit more and, um, and really find their own path as educators or as healthcare professionals or social service providers, whoever they are managing you know working with people I think people who use the this is Canada this is how we do things in Canada and if you decide that you want to do anything outside of this then you're somehow not loyal you know to being a citizen I think what they're really stating is this is the dominant culture you know and we like our dominant culture and we want to keep it and we're not willing to open it up and say that okay what you want to say or do or believe is part of the dominant culture too and but people, people are pushing back against that. You know, why isn't it? I mean, Eid is a Canadian holiday. Diwali is a Canadian holiday. Christmas is a Canadian holiday, right? So um, there's no such thing anymore as, you know, this is Canadian and this is not Canadian. If you're Canadian and you live in Canada and you do whatever, then that's Canadian. <laughs> so, um, and then of course you can always go back to legislation if you really have to you know if you're if you're going to talk to people who are not going to be reasonable and see the benefit of being inclusive then sometimes you have to say well I'm sorry you feel that way this is what our board policy states this is what Ontario Human Rights Code states there's a duty to accommodate up to undue hardship and so we actually by law have to find an accommodation it's and even if it's inconvenient we still have to try to find. We have to at least show our best attempt at being inclusive. Um, you know, otherwise, and, and now people can, can go to the Human Rights Commission and they can ask for, you know, a hearing. They can say, you know, I asked for this accommodation and I was denied because it was inconvenient or because the person disagreed with me philosophically. The, those are not valid reasons. And, you know, people, individuals and organizations then can be asked to pay money to the people that they've quote unquote harmed right through that process. So um, I think the law is kind of always where the buck stops.
I think that we do ourselves a disservice if we don't see religion as itself intersected. We talk about gender all the time, right? We talk about gender, but one of the critique of, critiques of feminism is that 1970s feminism reflected a kind of upper-middle-class white feminism. Where are the women of color? Where are third-world feminists? Our assumptions about religion preclude us from seeing it in the same way. But what if religion is also fundamentally intersected with economics, with race, with gender. It certainly is uh, intersected with gender because we have a lot of conversations about religion and patriarchy. I want to say that it's also inter it intersects with race. And in Canada, we don't have a particularly vibrant racial politics conversation for reasons that I'm still, as a, as a I mean, I've been here for 10 years in, the United, in Canada. I was trained in the United States and I was, I was alerted to a conversation in the United States around race, which was perhaps overblown at times and perhaps silent on issues of class. But in the Canadian context, I've been struck as an American who's now a naturalized Canadian. I've been struck by the absence of a, of a vibrant race conversation. And you could see it in the almost taken for granted nature of, you know, when you could have a bill be called the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act and not see that from a racial lens, not understand the racial impact that's going to have, how people from the global south who are now our neighbors are going to hear that. To me, that's a sign that we're, we're lacking a conversation. And I would say that to talk about religion and the public sphere today um, has to address the fact that the religions that we're worried about, the religions that we problematize in scare quotes, are also often the religion of people who are brown, the people who are recent immigrants, and the people who drive our taxis. Let's, let's use the Islamic as a case study, right? I think that this binary is particularly evident when we think about the place of Muslims and Islam in, in, our, in our political culture. And, and to be honest with you, for me, it was the federal campaign by the conservatives that prompted me to say to, to my law school that we need to teach a course on racial politics and the law because I think um, I think we need one. I think it's important that we talk about the way these kinds of binaries find their way into the law. And so that was the inspiration for me to think about this. And so I'll be teaching that in the spring um, to, to a group of law students who are very keen, in, keenly interested in this sort of, sort of thing. Um, but with the Islamic, I think that the, the binary is a function of two things. One is um, it's not about religion. It's about security. That's one. And two, it's security in a context where our enemy is hard to find. And so the binary is in the service of a policymaking process that has um, an information problem. They don't have intelligence. They don't have uh, enough information. And so in an, in an economic fashion, to facilitate a policy uh, that has to be implemented in real time, we make a number of assumptions and shortcuts. We see this in the context of Sharia. Sharia in the United States has, um, has become code for security threat. And so various states, the United States, have now banned Sharia under the guise of foreign law. Islamic banking is also seen as a vehicle for funding terrorists, when in fact it's completely part of an entire network of, 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 uh, of investment banks. There's a Dow Jones Sharia index. But our concern about security and the absence of any real information or our constantly sitting on the defensive because the, the, the nature of our enemy is no longer the Cold War state, but rather the non-state actor, is part of this 
this project. So, you know, I, I, in my mind, then, we need to recognize that what informs the binary is not so much what the religious is, but also this other circumstance. But I should also say that groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, who invoke the Islamic, don't help, right? They're also feeding into this binary. It's in their best interest that this binary exist. And to me, as, a, as, a, as someone who studies the Islamic, it's not enough to simply say that they're not Islamic, because it's participating in the binary itself. One, one has to recognize that, they, sure, let them be Islamic. There's nothing wrong with it. No one's in a position to declare one group or another not Muslim or not Islamic. But we are in a position to interrogate the assumptions that they're relying upon to determine what is and isn't the Islamic. How do we construe it? How do we see it as a constant variable? The more we as a society recognize that religion is no less a moving target than our public sphere, than secularism, than political partisanship, then we will be less comfortable in any binary that renders them constant. The binaries only work when you deem these things constants, unflailing, un un unchanging and rigid. But to me, um, to acknowledge that a group like ISIS is in fact Islamic alongside a group like the Muslim Brotherhood, just as well as the, the gay and lesbian mosque here in Toronto, they're no less Islamic, they're on a spectrum, suddenly what is or isn't Islam isn't so easy to articulate. This, this, this assumed separation of the secular from the religious is something that, um, that has precluded a vibrant conversation historically. I do think, though, that we're slightly shifting. I think that, um, I think that the Reasonable Accommodation Commission in Quebec um, offered us and offers a number of tools for thinking past this kind of set of ideas. But even that particular report wasn't perfect. It was often their limitations there as well. I'm, I'm a little bit more hopeful when I think about the students that I teach, when I think about them and the kind of conversations we're having. Um, I'm more hopeful because I think they're growing up in a world where the assumptions that animate those who hold the reins of power today aren't the assumptions these younger kids hold today. I mean, keep in mind, this is our internet generation. The students that I teach are grew up on the internet, grew up with, a, with, with the reality of a kind of plurality of views. That kind of conversation demands a recognition that there's no easy answer. There's no easy answer that, that we have to think hard about who's making the claim, what's the basis of the claim, what's the space that's being asked for, whose space is it to regulate, and regulate in whose interest. And once we begin thinking about all these questions as opposed to some simple binary, I think we can have a more meaningful conversation. But it does demand that we abandon the, the binary in favor of, of rendering the Islamic as well as our notion of the public uh, an open question. That's it for this episode of On Belief. Thank you to Suzanne Muir and Anwar Iman for sharing their thoughts. On Belief is a production of Emmanuel College of Victoria University in the University of Toronto. I'm Nahid Mustafa. Thank you for listening.